Well, we have been learning about a biosphere, Biosphere 2, remember? That's the uh, three-acre enclosure, an airtight enclosure in Arizona that housed for two years eight people and 3,800 species of plants and animals. And the purpose of that experiment was to see if humans could um, live their normal, ordinary lives cut off entirely from the outside world, including oxygen. And uh, we posed the question last week, under what circumstances uh, would it be permissible for these people to leave the biosphere and essentially break the experiment, breach the experiment at that point, and they decided they would know it when they saw it, which is exactly what happened when one of the biospherians, Jane Pointer, severed her finger uh, with a rice threshing machine, and after trying to sew it on with needle and thread, they decided that she had legitimate cause to leave this biosphere. So she did. And even the cynical journalists who were very skeptical about the project and looking for something to pounce on didn't begrudge her this decision. Uh, obviously, your finger gets chopped off, you've got to go to a hospital for surgery. So she left the biosphere only for the few hours that it took to surgically reattach her finger, and then she returned. And that's when things got heated. <laughs> because it was noticed a while later, not on the day, but a while later, that she returned carrying a duffel bag that she did not have when she left. See, she left empty and she came back full, as it were. And uh, the duffel bag had been given to her by management of experiments. She wasn't doing anything she hadn't been given permission to, but journalists thought that this was uh, a clear breach of the experiment. Now there was interference from the outside world. She had brought supplies in. Uh, the harmless supplies, really, computer parts and um, film for the camera and that kind of thing. Um, but investigations started about this, and it actually turns out that there had been many opportunities to smuggle things in and had been smuggled in. And also, there was a secret three-month supply of food already in the biosphere. And there was a time when the biospherians had run out of food, and so they, they went into that secret stash of of food as well. And so now the, the journalists were complaining greatly that this was a breach of the experiment's parameters. They were supposed to cope without any outside help whatsoever. Well, not only was this raging outside the biosphere, but there was actually a debate inside the biosphere among the, the biospherians themselves, and they broke into these two factions, um, four on each side. Remember, there were four men and four women, and they kind of uh, uh, came up with these two schisms. Uh, well, the schism between the two of them, where half of them sided with Jane Pointer and her philosophy, uh, and then the other, the other guy's group, I forget his name, they, they sided with him, and the, there were these two competing philosophies. Pointer's philosophy was that the purpose of this biosphere was to experiment, and it was to learn things about science that we didn't know before. And so the higher goal was served better if everyone in the biosphere was happy and healthy and comfortable and could get on with their work. And that's why she didn't have any problem when they injected oxygen into the system after the oxygen levels got too low. And she didn't have any problem bringing supplies in with her in her duffel bag um, or dipping into the secret food stash because our comfort and health and happiness is required for the experiment to work properly. The other schism, they were more 
purists, the other faction. And they said, no, the, the whole intention of this was to see that we could thrive in this cut-off system without any outside help or interference, and bringing anything in or, or dipping into the secret stash of food was a violation of this. And so things became so heated in the debate that eventually the two factions stopped talking to each other. Now, it's hard to avoid half the population of your biosphere, right? There's only eight people, and they all live here together, and they stopped talking to each other entirely, and um, things were very, very strained. Now, my question to you is this. Which faction would you side with? Well, let me ask it this way, more philosophically, because we're all in a biosphere. We're in biosphere one, by the way, the Earth. Um, do you believe that suffering is a necessary part of ordinary life, and should therefore not be avoided if it contradicts the rules that you've committed to live by. So is suffering a necessary part of ordinary life not to be avoided if it contradicts the rules that you've committed to live by? Or would you join a faction? Uh, do you believe that the rules you've committed to live by can be ignored or broken in order to minimize your suffering and discomfort? This is a choice that many of us make far more frequently than we even realize. Think about it. Every time there is a temptation to sin, usually the temptation involves the decision to ignore or break God's rules that we as Christians have committed to live by in order to gain some sort of safety, comfort, health, whatever it is. Well, this is a theme we're going to pick up in our narrative this morning. So turn in your Bibles to the days that the judges ruled Israel, the book of Ruth. As we continue to look at a snapshot of normal life. The thing about the biosphere is that it was this enclosed system cut off from anything else that happened. So if there was nuclear fallout or a war going on, these people could just really live oblivious to that. And, and we saw that life in the little village of Bethlehem during the days that the judges ruled Israel is a type of biosphere. It's this, this little snapshot of normal life. We know from our evening service, if we've been going through the book of Judges, that this was a time of moral chaos and spiritual darkness where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. They didn't uh, know the word of the Lord. They didn't obey the word of the Lord. And society was busy uh, degenerating into this chaos. But there were pockets of people who were faithful to Yahweh, who knew his word, who obeyed his word, who loved him, and were just doing the next right thing the best they knew how. And here we see a little enclosed system of Bethlehem, and the people here are just living ordinary lives, just doing what they do, business, work, romance, there's weddings, there's funerals. And we saw that because of the judgment that came over Israel in one of the cycles of judgment that came throughout the book of Judges, there was a famine in the land. And Elimelech, a uh, kind of old money founder of the town family, decided to leave Bethlehem, leave Israel, the promised land, and go to the enemy of Israel across the Jordan, known as Moab. Why? Because there was bread there. So there's no bread in the house of bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. So he goes off to Moab so that he can feed his family, prioritizing his own life and safety and that of his family over the covenant arrangement that his people had with Yahweh. And how did that work out for him? Not too well. He died, his sons died, and that's what we looked at last week. We looked at three responses to the bitter pill of God's sovereignty. Well, last week we looked at the first response, 
um, embodied in the person of Elimelech. His name has good theology, but not his behavior. His name means, my God is king. And yet he ignored God's sovereignty, didn't he? When he left the little biosphere of Bethlehem, when he left the covenant nation of Israel to side with Israel's enemies in order to look after his safety and well-being, his physical safety, he was turning his back on his people. As a footnote, we said it's not always wrong for people to leave the country they were born in, of course, but when the country is Israel, and this is the time under the Mosaic Covenant, they had to remain in the land. That was part of the covenant, that this is the land that God is blessing. You can sojourn out of it, but you need to have your home base in the land so that you can worship with God's people and keep the feasts that he had commanded. So, this famine was God's judgment on Israel, and they were called to live and bear that punishment Elimelech thought he was immigrating to safety, but he was actually immigrating to tragedy. So that's the first response we saw last week. This week, we're going to look at a second response that we could have to God's sovereignty, even when it feels bitter to us, and that is to acknowledge it, like Naomi. And then next week, we'll look at a third response, an even better response than Naomi's, I believe, to embrace it, like Ruth. So let me read for you the first seven verses again. In the days when the judges ruled, There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons, and the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left with her two, without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi really wants what is best for her daughters-in-law. That's all she has left. Her husband has died. Her sons have died. Of course they married Moabite wives. Who else were they supposed to marry in Moab? It's not like there were other faithful Jewish girls to choose from. And so now they have started integrating in the culture, but they are still faithful to Yahweh. We can tell this by her response, even after everything she's been through. Now they've died, and she wants to leave. So her and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, they leave. But... On the way, before they actually leave Moab, Naomi realizes that she's jumping from the frying pan into the fire. You know, it's bad enough that she left Moab, but now she's going back ostensibly to get help from her countrymen. But think about what's happened. I'm the one that abandoned you 10 years ago to go where the grass is greener, to try to avoid the judgment of Yahweh while I left you here to stew in it. Now I'm coming back as a widow, and I'm expecting you to look after me for the rest of my life. Oh, and by the way, I have um, two other widows with me, 
No, they're not related to you like I am. In fact, they're not even Jewish. I mean, how's this going to play? Just imagine the scene. She shows up in Bethlehem and there's two daughters-in-law with their suitcases in the driveway behind. And you're asking your next of kin to spend his hard-earned money not only on his family now, but on you who left them and these foreigners that are in tow. This isn't going to go well, is it? And so she says in verse 8, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. This is a very poignant scene. Um, She's basically saying, look, this isn't going to work out for you. You can't come with me. You need to stay. You need to go and be be back with your people. Go back to your mother's house um, and, and find a new husband. And may God deal kindly with you and your new husband. But basically, there's a big choice being made here. There's a line in the sand. You're choosing to reject what you've learned about Yahweh and the covenant people and go back to your old society with its religion. Now, you have to understand a little bit better about the way it worked in those days. There's parallels in these days, but in those days it was very clear that the religion of the husband was the religion of the household. People understood that. You even see that in the New Testament, right? The Philippian jailer gets saved and he goes home and then the whole household becomes believers at the same time and they all get baptized and they all join the covenant, um, the new covenant. Well, here you've got people in the old covenant and if you died, there was, uh, if you were a man and you had a family and you died, there was a system in place in the law of Moses that everyone in the nation knew. It was called the Leverite marriage system. And we're going to learn more about that later on when we meet. Yeah, I don't want to ruin it for you. But um, the Leverite system said very specifically that the next of kin, the, the, the male closest to the one who died, brother, uncle, cousin, somebody, the male closest to the one who died, had a responsibility to take care of the widow and household of his kinsman, his brother. Those of you who have brothers, think through that for a moment. (laughs) You died, now your wife is going to be your brother's wife. What does she think about that? Well, that didn't really play into it. Because the choice wasn't between him and another man. The choice was between him and dying of starvation. Now think of your brother-in-law. I mean, he might be a bit of a pain in the neck around Thanksgiving, but at least he's not death. Some of you are saying you haven't met my in-laws. But the point is that the system was there to help the family. It's very foreign to us. Um, But to them, it was law in Israel. And so this is what Naomi is costing herself on. But the law doesn't apply to Moabites. And so now she's saying, you go back to your family and let them take care of you. What this little speech does for us is it starts supplying us with clues about Naomi's theology that's instructive to us. Let me remind you what theology is. Theology, the study of God, is the concept that you have studied the whole Bible and you can keep 
what the whole Bible says in your mind when you look at one verse. That's what theology is, making sure that everything that you read in Scripture fits in with everything else and that there's no contradictions. And you can't really tell a person's theology except by looking at their life. You can give them an exam, and trust me, those who've been through seminary know, they give you exams to make sure you know your theology with all of your verses and see how it, you have to write essays and you have to answer questions and you know that theology and you can get an A++ on that theology exam and the first time tragedy strikes, it all goes out the window. And you may never have gone to seminary, never read a systematic theology or biblical theology, but you've been reading your Bible and when tragedy strikes, you respond understanding what the Bible says about your God and about your situation. That's theology. Theology isn't a degree. It's the application of the word of God in your life. And so I want you to think of your theology and how it bleeds out in the things that happen to you. And what's going to help you think through that is looking at how the theology of Naomi bleeds out in her response to this tragedy that is really pressing her. Let me read it again, what she says here to the daughters-in-law. She says, May Yahweh deal kindly with you, as you've dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh, grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, they lift up their voices, and they wept. So at first we see here that she believes in God. She calls him Yahweh by his covenant name, so she has not adopted the gods of Moab. This is interesting because when people moved to different countries, they would adopt the god of the country that they went to. There was a belief in the ancient Near East that there were multiple gods, and each god had a region. And sometimes the god even had like a uh, sub-region. You know, Baal, for example, was the god of lightning, and he was found on mountaintops, which is why the thing with Elijah and the prophets of Baal happened on a mountaintop, on Mount Carmel. Well, the the gods of Moab, um, the main god there was a guy called Shemosh, really nasty god um, that required child sacrifice. And, uh, And you would become Shemosh worshippers. But she hasn't. She is still believing in Yahweh, so she's still Jewish. Um, She left Israel, but not Israel's God. Secondly, we see that apparently she taught the girls something about Yahweh because she speaks of him to them. And so she knows that Yahweh will extend grace even to Gentiles. That's a little piece of theology that's helpful to know. She knows that Yahweh can be active for good in Moab because she says Yahweh can deal kindly with you there even though you're among those people. So she understands more than many people in the ancient Near East that Yahweh was not limited to his little slice of real estate, but that he was the God of everywhere. We also see that she believes that Yahweh is involved in the selection of a spouse. You go, and he's going to deal kindly with you, and you're going to get another husband. But the most impressive facet of her theology is her robust understanding of God's sovereignty. She knows better than many Christians today that God is in control of everything. I'm going to use the the word sovereignty a lot in this series. I believe it's the main theme of what the book of Ruth is teaching, one of the main themes. Sovereignty is a doctrine, a teaching of the Bible that states that God is in control of everything and involved in every detail. That's sovereignty. Sovereignty teaches that God is in control of 
everything and is involved in every detail, even the minor details. And we will look at some verses even in the New Testament a little later on in the sermon. But just keep that in mind that here is a woman who believes in the doctrine of God's sovereignty, that he's in control of what happened. He's in complete control of everything, every detail in life. And so now we see really the second response that you can have to the sovereignty of God. One is ignore it and pretend that it can't follow you like Elimelech and let's say Jonah. Um, Or you can be like Naomi and acknowledge that it's true. Now let's see what she says here. Verse 10. And they said to her, the daughter said, no, we will return with you to your people. And Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. There it is. She paints this picture. It's a, this is a bleak situation for you girls. I understand that. And I'm sorry that this has come upon you. I'm sorry for your sakes that the hand of Yahweh is against me. Do you see what she's saying here? She's saying, you in a sense have become collateral damage to what Yahweh is doing to me. It sounds a little edgy, and it is. But before we look at that, let me point out to you, Naomi has a really wise and mature understanding of how God's sovereignty works together with human responsibility. This is a mistake a lot of people make. You get the people that say, God's not really in control. It's all up to me and my free will and what I decide and what I do. Um, And then you get the people that say, no, God's in complete control. And so you have no responsibility in this. God will choose who he chooses. He will save who he saves. And it's really not up to you at all. And those two things, they're kind of in contradiction to each other. But when you see them in scripture, this paradox works well because the people, they keep both of those intentions. They they don't put them against each other. They don't say you have to pick. You do have to be responsible for your actions, and you do have to give God credit for his sovereignty in it. You see Paul doing this all the time, right? Paul says um, that I worked harder than them. Not me, but his power in me. Uh, He says this is the will of God, your sanctification. Um, And then he talks about how God is the one that works this in you. Uh, in, In Ephesians, he says that, um, you need to, you've been saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. I mean, he just puts them right next to each other. This is just, you know, a paradox in a, in a pond. <laughs> they work together. You can only see one at a time, though, right? That's a paradox. But here you see it in one lady. God is doing this. God is involved. But you need to do your part, which is put yourself where there are men who will marry you. This is something that popped up in seminary a lot because, you know, in seminary there's a lot of uh, single guys. And in our seminary there were no women. It was a seminary training men to be pastors, so there were no women in the seminary. So you're in class a lot, you're doing homework a lot, you're in the library a lot, and you never see a girl. Except the secretaries, and I married one of those. But um, (laughs) there's only so many of them, you know. (laughs) 
So um, what happens is you get these guys who are so into God's sovereignty that you, they say, God is sovereign over my spouse. If God wants me married, he will, he will find me a wife. And then they end up getting all the way through seminary and they're still single, which is fine. They eventually find their wife. But then you get the other people who understand man's responsibility. I too believed that God would give me a wife and that he was sovereign. But I would go and study at the master's college library where there were girls. And I would eat at the master's college. You know, it was, it was like 40 minutes away, but it was worth it. Just in case the Lord wanted to exercise his sovereignty. <laughs> I was there, you know. I always made sure I dressed well and smelt good and was sitting in the cafeteria with a little sign saying open for business, basically. Um, <laughs> now, as it turned out, that didn't work so well for me. But, but it's this idea of, okay, I'm going to do my part trusting that God is sovereign over what happens one way or the other. And you see that with her. Go back to Moab because that is your only chance at finding a husband. Who's going to marry a Moabite in Israel? The people who wouldn't leave Israel, who would rather die of starvation than leave the covenant of Yahweh. Those are the people we're going to go back to. I know the people in Bethlehem. They're not going to marry a Moabite. And you don't have any, you don't have any kinsmen there, but you've got kinsmen here. But what I want to focus on for now is this statement, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, I'm sorry that you had to deal with this, that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. See, Naomi knows something that most people don't know. She knows how to think about what's happening with her, even when it's bad. There's a question on everybody's mind when a tragedy strikes. Whether it's wildfires in Hawaii that kill people, whether it's a tower that gets struck by terrorists and kills people, whether it's an earthquake or a tsunami or sudden death of a loved one or a terminal disease or anything bad that happens to children, there's always a question that comes up. And Naomi knows how to think. She doesn't know the answer, but she knows how to think about it. On February 15th, 1947, a man by the name of Gary Chambers was sitting in Miami airport waiting for a flight. He was finally going to have his dreams come true. He wanted to be a missionary. He was going to be a missionary in the Andes with a group called the Voice of the Andes. And so he was going to go to South America and live in the mountains and be a missionary and share the gospel. And he'd been preparing for this and training for this and praying for it. And it had all been provided for. And he was ready to go. And he was sitting in Miami airport. And just as he was about to leave, he remembered something he wanted to tell his mom. So in 1947, they didn't have cell phones. So he wanted to keep, he had an envelope and a stamp and all that, but he wanted to keep his paper for his journey. So he saw a magazine article lying on the floor, and he picked up that paper, and he tore off a piece, and he, on the one side it was a little bit more blank, on the other side there was an advertisement, and so on the blank part, he wrote this note to his mom. And he heard his flight called, and so he stuffed it in the envelope, and he mailed it off. He got on his flight, and a few hours later, that Avianca flight crashed into one of the peaks in the Andes. It was flying at 10,500 feet. This was a 14,000-foot peak. There was fog. The person flying didn't trust the instruments, and they crashed, and the 53 people on board died in a ball of flames. Gary Chambers' mother found out that news later that day. 
but it was several days later that the letter arrived that her son had written just before he died. And so she opens the letter and she sees this scrap of a magazine page and she reads every word through teary eyes of what her son wrote her and, and when she was done she turned over the paper and the part of the advertisement that had been torn off was just one word in bold letters. The word, why? That so encapsulates the essence of that tragedy and every other tragedy. No matter what the other details, there's always this one glaring, bold word in everyone's mind. Why? Well, she doesn't know the answer. Naomi doesn't, can't, she can't know why this happened to her. But she can trust that it's not random. And she can trust that it is not meaningless. And that it's not bad luck. Because she is acknowledging that Yahweh is in control. This is a bitter thing that's happened to me. This is a bitter thing that's happened to the people around me. My family is suffering because of this bitter thing. But the bitter thing is coming to me from the hand of God. Verse 13, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against she shows, Naomi shows, that you can grieve and trust at the same time. That you don't need to know why. You just need to know who. Now, is it even okay for us to say this, that the hand of Yahweh has gone against me? Now, parents, cover your kids' ears because she's not done. Look at verse 19. 19, she really gets warmed up. Verse Uh, 19, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman of the town said, is this Naomi? Now you have to remember in Hebrew, the word Naomi means pleasant. So she's named pleasant. And so she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. So don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full And Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So she changes her name to bitter. This is pretty intense. Her reaction to this bitter tragedy reveals something about her theology, though, that is truly remarkable. She acknowledges that God is the one that brought the tragedy into her life. She calls him almighty, meaning powerful enough to do anything, omnipotent. She calls him almighty twice. She names him Yahweh by his covenant name. She knows who did this. Now, she's not embracing it yet at this point. She's not delighting in it. But she's doing so much more than people do today, and that is she is acknowledging it. She is assigning responsibility in the only place that her theology allows her to, the hand of God. Now, don't tell the insurance agents among us this, but everything is an act of God. You know, insurance says, we'll cover this and this, but we won't cover that because that was an act of God. You know, a tsunami is an act of God. Well, don't tell them that everything is an act of God. 
Every bump on your fender, every broken windshield, every dent in your car, every hail damage, tornado damage, anything, mistake you made, texting while driving, everything is an act of God. Now notice, you, you have to be careful. You can't assign blame to God. There's a difference between assigning blame and acknowledging responsibility. And we do this all the time. If I tell you that the, the head of the school um, assigned a suspension, he suspended one of the boys because the boy was caught smoking in the bathrooms. Who did the suspension? Well, the head of the school did the suspension. Whose fault was it? The boys. God is the one that we assign all responsibility for everything that happens. But God is not blamed. God does nothing wrong. The difference between a responsibility and blame is that blame insinuates that you did something wrong. God never does anything wrong. Now, there's, there's a mystery of sometimes how all that works together. And you understand it more when you start seeing the grand scheme of redemption and how all these little things plug in together. And we do see pieces of this put together for us in Scripture. Like we're about to see this bad thing that happened to Naomi turns out for amazing good for centuries to come. We'll see that by the end of the series. She doesn't know that. And when it happens in your life, you usually have no clue how it all fits in. And usually there isn't a, a little genealogy at the end of chapter 4 that tells everybody left behind why all the bad things happen to you in your life. Nobody knows why it happened, but God knows. God knows. One commentator said it this way, this lament is a bitter complaint cloaking firm faith. Yes, she's complaining against God, but it's her faith that even puts her into a position to understand who to complain about. She doesn't ignore God's role. This is a legitimate response in a trial. A bitter complaint cloaking firm faith. What I want you to leave with today is knowing this. You need to work on the doctrine of sovereignty before tragedy strikes. You need to study for the exam before it lands up on your desk and the clock starts ticking. You need to learn about sovereignty because the worst time to learn about sovereignty is through teary eyes where you don't want to hear that God is good. You don't want to hear how all things work together for good. You don't want to hear how sovereign he is. You want someone to blame. You want someone to shake your fist at. You want to know the answer why. Friends, that's not the time for you to sit down in a Bible study and learn about sovereignty. Now is. And so this, in God's providence, this very series that we're learning now may equip you for the rest of your life. This is a book you're going to need to run back to in the future. Now, where did she learn this? Turn to the book of Job. Job is um, the book just before the book of Psalms. So Psalms is in the middle of your Bible. Job chapter 1. Verse 21. And we sang a song this morning, Blessed Be the Name, which is based on Job. Job was a righteous man. And... If 
you know the story, Satan and God have a discussion and Satan says that the righteous people only worship you because things are going well with them. And God says, have you considered my servant Job, a righteous man that God was pleased with? And Satan said, yeah, he's only righteous because look at him, he's rich. He's got this huge family. You've been blessing him. Of course he loves you. If you took away your blessing, he would stop loving you. And so God says, you can take away his blessing up to the point of his health. And so Satan responds by killing all 10 of Job's children and collapsing his storehouses and his business and wiping out his entire flock and all of his wealth. So he loses all of his money, all of his family, all of his assets in one day. And this is Job's response. Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, this is Job's worship on the worst day of his life. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. Yahweh gave. Yahweh is taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job knew this was from the hand of the Lord. Now, we, if you read the story, and I encourage you to read it at home, you read chapter 1, you're going to find that the wind that comes um, in... Uh, in verse 19, a great wind that came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they're dead. That wind, Satan sent that little hurricane that killed that family. You read before that, it talks about the Chaldeans in verse 17, formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants by the edge of the sword and I alone escaped to tell you. The Chaldeans, these marauding terrorists, invaded and, and killed everybody and, the, and the, all the servants and the animals and all that, those people and their free will to do that, that was sent by Satan. But Job acknowledges this was sent by God. Because he understands, as Martin Luther said, that Satan is God's devil. Satan does nothing and can do nothing outside the express permission of what God says. And the evidence of that is that Satan doesn't hurt Job. Why not? Because he wasn't allowed to. So then he comes and he complains more and more. Well, of course, you take away everything of him. He's still worshiping you, but it's because he's not in pain. You take a person's health and they will turn on you. And God says, you can do whatever you want to his body, but you may not take his life. And so he comes up with this painful, nerve-wracking disease and the whole rest of the book is his friends trying to make sense of why. But Satan didn't kill him. And you know why? Because he wasn't allowed to. So whether the wind came because some butterfly moved the thing and it started a blah, blah, blah tsunami, or whatever it is, whatever the physics behind the wind is, or because it came because Satan sent it, or it came because God sent it, the answer to all of that is God allowed this. God could have stopped it. God ordained that this happened. He wanted this to happen. And Job doesn't know why. And right at the end of the book of Job, Job actually gets an audience with God and says, why? And you know what God says? Well, let me tell you about chapter 1 where Satan, and look, you did well. 
And now for, for centuries, people are going to know your name and we're going to use you as an example. You're going to be a sermon illustration in every sermon on sovereignty. No, God says none of that. He says, Job, who am I and who are you? That's the answer. I mean, it's long and it's poetic and it's amazing and there's a lot of animals in there too. You think you're big stuff. You know that big fish? You can't even get it out the water. I made it. That's who we are. That's the difference. I make things, you can't even get them out the water. And all you need to know is that I am God and I am sovereign and I am powerful and that's all you're getting. And friends, we have so much more than that because we have the book of Job that he didn't have. And we've got the book of Ruth that Naomi didn't have. In Amos chapter 3 verse 6, Amos says, is a trumpet blown in a city, meaning is there an alarm for an attack coming? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless Yahweh has done it? Is there a wildfire in the city unless God allowed it? That God did it? Is there a pandemic in this world unless God did it? Is there a terrorist attack in this world unless God did it? That's what Amos 3.6 is saying. And in Genesis chapter 50, we have Joseph, after he's been sold into slavery, he's been uh, falsely accused, he's been, I mean, just a long career of suffering ends with him and his brothers who started all of this, this little domino effect of suffering for him. And this is what he says to them. Genesis 50 verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph acknowledged that everything that happened, even his brother's sin against him, God was involved in. That's sovereignty. We have the New Testament. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So we've learned from the Old Testament that all things work together for God's purpose. What we learn from the New Testament is, and that purpose for those who love God ends up good. Not for everybody in the world, but for those that love God. We know that those who love God, all things work together for good and for those who are called according to his purpose. In Matthew 10, 29, one of my favorite verses in the whole New Testament, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Not one sparrow dies without God's say-so. That's how involved he is. Now, when you start seeing these verses, and you'll see them all over Scripture, that God is involved in everything, everything that happened to you, it could be abuse, it could be divorce, it could be disease, it could be bankruptcy, it could be one of a million things. It's not random. It's not meaningless. God is good and he loves you and he has a purpose and we don't always understand it. We don't always know why. But we need to root ourselves and anchor ourselves in the truth that God is involved. And I don't know about you, but for me that gives me tremendous comfort. That it's, it's not an act. It, there's no accident. There's no randomness. And that's going to affect the fear that you have. And that's going to affect the anxiety that you have. And that's going to affect the planning that you do. And the comfort that you have. Let me end with this verse. This is the most 
unjust execution in history, the most sinful thing that ever happened, the worst calamity ever, the worst tragedy, is what happened to Jesus. And yet we know that wasn't random. Acts chapter 2, 23, Peter said, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew it and he ordained it. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified, you Jews, and killed by the hands of lawless men, the Gentiles who crucified him. So Peter acknowledges, yes, you're responsible. You called for his death and you're culpable and that's why they all respond, what shall we do? How do we repent? How do we fix this? You did it. The Gentiles who didn't even know what was going on, they did it, but guess what? This was all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Why? So that you and I could be saved. And so this is what we learn from this little snapshot of normality, that life is full of suffering. Life is full of tragedy and grief. But none of it is meaningless. None of it is random. Learn from Naomi. Don't take her ranting as a license to blame God. God never does anything wrong. Do not impugn his goodness. But also, do not make the equally blasphemous conclusion that God is not in control. Don't impugn his power, his wisdom, and his right to reign. But that's only one other response for God's kingship. There's another one that's modeled by Ruth that's even better. And for that, you need to come back next week. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder. It is really an important message for us to grasp, and yet it's such a difficult thing to reconcile how these tragedies and even people's sin, violence, famine, all of these things that happen, Lord, are under your control, ordained by you. And ultimately, for those of us who love you, it works out to our good. I pray for us, Lord, that your spirit would teach us these truths, that he would help us to remember them when we need them. Help them to sink deeply into our ears and our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.